the question, what is really wrong with the world? And you might say, well, that's a rather big question. Are you going to be able to answer that in, you know, 35 minutes? Well, actually, this morning's message is going to be 35 hours. So uh, just please stay tuned. Yeah, the people, I, y'all can't see this, but people around are standing up and clapping right now. They're so excited about that. Now, no, we're not going to talk about all the things that are wrong with the world because there's a lot of things that are wrong. And one of the things that's wrong with the world right now is coffee shops do not open until 7.30. That's just crazy. Uh, but fortunately, Charles Lance pointed out to me that there is one coffee shop in town that opens at 5.30 in the morning and they sell kolaches. So I'm so glad that there's somebody who gets up an hour before me every day intentionally on purpose. It's fantastic. So there's lots of things that are wrong in the world. But what's really wrong? What's the core problem? And uh, that's an important question to ask. What's really wrong? Because if we don't understand what's really wrong with the world, if we misidentify what the core problem actually is, we will come up with some bad answers to what's really wrong. And, and then we will come up with some poor solutions. And if you don't actually address the actual problem, then the solutions that you come up with will make the problem worse because the problem's not actually getting addressed. So what's really wrong with the world? People have different opinions or different ideas of what's really wrong. For example, there are a great many people that would say, well, here's what's really wrong with the world. There are oppressors and then there are the oppressed. And we're concerned about this because when you look back over our nation's history and you look at current evidence, it's probably true that black people frequently are not, at least not always, treated equally in the eyes of the law. And so what's really, what's really wrong, not just there, but with everything? Well, if we don't understand what's the core problem, we might be saying some of the same things, but we're meaning different things. I got to thinking about this with regards to Martin Luther King Jr. And, you know, the I have a dream speech. And he said things like, hatred doesn't drive out hatred. Only love will drive out hatred. Darkness doesn't drive out darkness. Only light will drive out darkness. Conflict doesn't stop conflict. Only peace will stop conflict. We might be talking about needing justice and we might be talking about putting an end to prejudice and putting an end to racism and we all agree we want to see that happen but if we don't understand what the core problem is we might be saying the same things but we're actually meaning different things and when martin luther king jr gave his i have a dream speech and many other wonderful messages it was always in the context of the gospel and in the context of the gospel and in the context of the Bible, what's really wrong with this world is a lot different than what maybe Marxists would say is really wrong with this world. See, we've got a whole lot of people who would say, here's what's wrong with the world, and it's real simple. Here's the simple problem. You've got oppressed people and you've got oppressors. And so the solution to the problem is the oppressed need to actively, aggressively rise up against their oppressors. And the oppressors need to, they have a moral obligation to essentially repay in some respect or another those who have been oppressed. 
Now, let me tell you kind of what's going on here, and you've probably been watching the news and you read the newspaper and the magazines and all the rest. You know what's happening here? The narrative for our nation has changed from something that is gospel-oriented or gospel-saturated to something called critical theory. Now, let me explain this to you. I don't think this is too hard to get, but you will have to pay attention. Critical theory is basically something that has happened because we had intellectuals, largely in academic settings, who took the ideas of Karl Marx and applied them to specific categories of distinction, okay? They took the general economic or social theory and applied it to specific class distinctions like race and sexual identity and gender identity as if your whole person is wrapped up and captured by the class of which you are part. And so all conflict is inevitable because the universe not only can be divided into different classes, it should be divided into different classes. It's inevitable that we're divided into different classes. And so justice is just about a balance of conflict, not an end to it. And so you're, you're not just, your, your race or your gender, it's not just a part of your identity. It is your identity. It is the essence of who you are. And so who you are doesn't come down to who you are as an individual or your choices and all the rest. Who you are comes down to your race, to your gender, to your sexual preferences. That's who you are. You're not an actor on the stage as much as you are a part of the stage and life is being acted upon you. You're not judged on the basis of your individual accomplishments. You are just a part, a tiny part of this ongoing struggle between two various forces. This is Marxism applied to class. You can be and you should be divided into different classes. And so if you're of the oppressed, you have an obligation to rise up, to actively take a posture against the oppressor. And if you're the oppressed, you have an obligation to, in some respect or another, pay back that class that you have oppressed. But your individual identity is all wrapped up in group identity. Now, this all works in Marxist philosophy because there's no God in Marxism. And so ideas of reconciliation and forgiveness and miraculous transformation and, you know, peace and coming together as one, those kinds of words that we typically talk about Those are unique to the gospel. Those aren't unique to Marxist philosophy. And so it's entirely possible that people would say, you know, I want there to be justice. I want there to be an end to racism. But they are still meaning something entirely different by what they're saying. Something entirely different than what Martin Luther King Jr. was communicating when he said, I have a dream. Darkness can't be overcome by darkness. It can only be overcome by light. Conflict can't be overcome by conflict. It can only be overcome by peace. You know, hatred doesn't drive out hatred. Only love drives out hatred. He had a gospel context. He understood that the problem, the real problem with the world wasn't just that you've got some people over here in this class and some people over here in this class and there's always going to be struggle and it's inevitable and that's just the way it is. Martin Luther King Jr., along with other gospel preachers, understood that the core problem, the central problem that we deal with is that we have lost connection with God. 
See, here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach the real problem is there's this class over here and this, there's this class over here and there's going to be this conflict. Here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches we're all in the same class together. That we all have a, a glorious aspect because we were created in the image of God. But unfortunately, we've become inglorious because the image of God has been tainted. It has been marred. It has been damaged. And so universally, all of us need the same thing, which is the image of God to be restored in our lives. What the gospel teaches, what the Bible teaches is this. The core problem is not there's this class over here. The core problem is we're actually all in the same boat together. We have all done wrong, and we are all equally in need of forgiveness. That's the problem. We're all in the same boat, and yet for some reason or another, we are refusing to drink from the water in which we float, or to paraphrase it from Acts chapter 17. In him we live and move and have our being, and yet for some reason we are not taking in the one in whom we live and move and have our being. We've lost connection with God And the Bible says, there's a word for this, it's sin. And so ultimately the big problem is not between me and you or them and them or us and them and all of the rest. The big problem is between us and God. And when that situation gets reconciled, then actual peace and unity and restoration is possible for other people. But when we misidentify the problem, we misidentify the solution And when you misidentify the solution, the problem never gets addressed and the problem can actually become worse because you are misapplying something in the wrong way to the wrong actual problem. So the question again that's so important for us to ask is what is really wrong with the world? Here's what's wrong with the world. We are not taking into the center of who we are what is actually most important and most significant, which is absolutely vital to vibrancy and abundance and life. And that element that we are missing is God himself. Here's how the apostle, here's how uh, David puts it. I want to, I want to skip ahead a little bit here. Just thinking, just just thinking here, okay, what, what's really wrong with the world? Part of what's wrong with the world is we've gotten what's wrong with the world all wrong. Now, I know that I've kind of thrown a whole lot at you really, really quickly. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to back up a little bit, and I want to direct your attention to a, a king, a very important king in the Old Testament, because I think when we look at his life and we look at what he teaches and we look at what he did and how he ended his life, we're going to see all of these things brought together in a very powerful and simple and meaningful way. And the king of which I'm speaking is actually David. And when you look at his life and you look at what he does and you look at what he says and you look at what he teaches and you look at his particular convictions, you're going to recognize that when we have identified the problem correctly and when the problem has been identified correctly, There are implications for our lives individually and corporately. See, I don't talk about this all the time, but the reality is the gospel has social implications. The gospel has political implications. When we talk about here's what the real problem is and here's what the real solution is, do you think that makes a difference in your marriage, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your world? Absolutely. It was the gut-level conviction of King David. 
So let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God is speaking to us through his word. I want to start with something that David wrote. And you may not think that what David wrote was inspired by God or it came from God. But you can still at least say David was a significant historical figure. And so you should want to pay attention to what he says. But here's what David says over in Psalm chapter 63. He says, oh, God, you're my God. I earnestly search for you, which, by the way, surveys have been done. Earnest is the most powerful word in the Bible. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, David gives us in this little passage a picture of what it's like to actually really know where it is that God belongs in your life. And what David recognizes is just as my body needs water, just as my body needs food, just as if I'm in the desert and I don't get water, I'm going to shrivel up and eventually die. That's how it is for a person with relation to God. If you don't have God, if you're not taking him in to your life, if you are not connected to the one in whom you live and move and have your being, if you're not connected to the one who is better than life, then here's what will happen. Nothing will thrive. Nothing in your life, nothing in your heart, nothing in your family, nothing will thrive. In fact, if you're in the middle of the desert and you think, I know what I'll do, I'll just drink sand. And so you get a cup and you dip the sand and you just chug it down and you think that's somehow going to save you or rescue you, you are mentally ill. In the same way, David lets us know, if you're placing your faith, your ultimate trust in something other than God and God alone, whether it be your possessions or your reputation or your acquisitions or whatever the case may be, the next conquest, whatever the case may be, if that's where you are making your ultimate foundation or that's where you're getting your source of life, you're out of touch with reality. Just like if you don't drink water, you're going to shrivel up and die. So too, if you don't have God at the center, if he is not the one in whom you live and move and have your being, if he's not the one that you're looking to for your life, everything will fall apart and disintegrate. That's why David says what he says next without hesitation and with total conviction. He says, your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. I will praise you with songs of joy. Now, I love this because when David says, you satisfy me more than the richest feast, he uses something, some language that some interpreters have said could actually be translated as the fattest of fat or fat and fatness, which I absolutely love. And here's why. When the economic little shutdown happened and everybody had to stay in home and you shelter in place, three months ago, I got out of the habit of exercising. I kind of did a little bit. But I got out of it, the gym shut down, now the gym's opened up and I haven't gotten back into the habit. You know why? Because when I exercise, I eat right, but I haven't been exercising, so I haven't been eating right. And I have discovered something. Eating right is way overrated. It really, I mean, it's, it's overrated. Do I have an amen? Do I have some people clapping here? This is true. I did not know. I started eating a little bit more, you know, junk food. And of course, y'all know I like the key lime pie, but I have also experienced something that I loved before Gina, nacho cheese Doritos. Man, you know, when you, we've had some bags and I try to do this when Gina's not around, okay, because it's embarrassing. This is one after the other after another. You know why I just keep putting it in my mouth? 
because there's nothing that satisfies like the fatness of fat. It's true. Any, everything tastes better with butter on it, doesn't it? How about bacon? You put bacon in anything, even if it's your sonic drink mixed up, it, isn't it better? It's true. More fat, better. Eating right, overrated. What David would have us to understand is when we wake up in the morning and we have that coffee and our donut, we ought to be saying to God, Lord, you are better than life. You're better than the fattest of fatness. You, when you're eating that donut, you might just say, God, you are the, you're the donut of my soul. You are the bacon of my heart. You are the Dorito chips of my spirit. You, you are better than the fattest of fatness. And, and in all seriousness, you go throughout the day, essentially, when you recognize that he's the true water, when he's the true meal, he's the true feast, here's what you do. You may not always do it in the same language, but here's what happens. You start saying, Lord, I need you. And I don't just need you as a means to an end. I need you because you are better than your unfailing love, your chesed, your covenantal love. You are better than life itself. And so I need you. I don't just need you as a means to an end. I don't just need you to get me the more Dorito chips or the bacon, or the bagel, or whatever the case may be. Lord, I need you. And then later on in the day, maybe at af- afternoon, you're like, I-, I need you. And then before you go to bed, I need you. And throughout the day, you're saying, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. You know what that's called? That's called spiritual breathing. Now, let me ask you something. What happens when you stop breathing? The, the people here are really sharp. They're still thinking about it. You die. Very good. A nurse gave me the right answer. You pass. You stop drinking. You die. You stop eating. You die. David has this conviction, this fundamental, heartfelt, personal conviction. God, you are to me more important than water in a desert. You're more important than the food that I have. You you are what I need. You, your love is better than life. That's not overstatement. That's sanity. David has this conviction about it for himself, but he also has this conviction that if my greatest need is for God, if my biggest problem is his absence, then the big solution is God's presence in my life. But he feels that so strongly for himself that he also feels the need for something for his people. It's not just for himself. When David is king, he has a number one passion to see happen with his nation. You know what it is? You know what he wants for the people more than anything else? And here's how we know he wants this for the people more than anything else because of the first thing that he does for his people. The, the thing he wants more than anything else is for God to dwell vibrantly right smack dab in the middle of their lives. And we know that he wants this more than anything else because the first thing that he does as king is he goes and finds the Ark of the Covenant, which is remote and distant, and he brings it back to Jerusalem, which is the capital city, which is in the middle of all the life of the the people of God. Now, for those of you who don't know that much about the Ark of the Covenant, I would suggest that you maybe read a book about it or maybe watch a movie. I know people don't read books that much. Here's a movie I'd recommend, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Harrison Ford will tell you all about it. It's this powerful thing. It's a little box covered with gold. And it does look like what it's portrayed in the movie to be. But here's the thing about the box. It's not just that it's pretty and it's got the angel wings pointing to the center and all the rest. 
The Ark of the Covenant in the Bible represents the place of God's presence. That's what it's all about. Why was it important for the Ark of the Covenant to return to Jerusalem? Because it was the... Y'all are slow. Place of God's presence. Thank you very much. It's the place of God's presence. Now, for the longest time, the Ark of the Covenant had been somewhere else. And so the people of God believed in God, but God had been remote and distant. Now God's not remote and distant. Because for David, he believed, what I need more than anything else is God. And you know what else? Everybody else is in the same boat with me. We will not thrive. We will not survive. We will not be the people that God would have us to be if we don't address our fundamental problem. And the fundamental problem is we've lost connection with God. And we need his presence in our midst. Now, here's what happens when David brings the Ark of the Covenant back into the middle of the people. When David brings the Ark of the Covenant back, here's what happens. The, the tabernacle comes with it. And the tabernacle was this mobile unit that basically housed the Ark of the Covenant. And, and that's important because people, when they looked at the tabernacle, saw that a broken people like us can have an actual relationship with a holy, holy, holy God. Broken people like us can have a relationship with a God who is perfect and absolutely right. You know how that happened? They would see the art, they would see the tabernacle and they would see this in a very physical, present sort of way. But you know how that relationship with God actually was established? Here's what happened. Every year, once a year, on the same day, one man would go in to see the one God in one way. This priest would go into the, into the Holy of Holies, go into where the Ark of the Covenant was, and blood from a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice, an unblemished sacrifice, would be spilled or poured out or sprinkled on what was called the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. It was a way of God communicating to his people, it's entirely possible to have a relationship with me, but here's what's required. The blood of an innocent sacrifice. The innocent must suffer so that the guilty can thrive. The innocent must die so that the guilty can thrive and live. And you're all guilty but I want you all to thrive because if you're going to be at peace with one another, first and foremost, here's what has to happen. You've got to be at peace with me. And in all of that was this promise that was contained where God was letting us know, I will provide the perfect sacrifice whereby there will be the forgiveness of sins so that there will be peace, not ongoing, unending conflict on conflict on conflict because you're a member of that group and you're a member of that group. No, you're all a member of the same group. But when you're reconciled to me, guess what will happen? There'll be reconciliation to one another. David believed this so strongly that he went and got the Ark of the Covenant and brought the Ark of the Covenant back. And here's what he saw happen. When the Ark of the Covenant was brought back into the midst of the people, here's what started happening when people saw God and lived as if God was in the midst. Blessing. Marriages were changed. People knew how to raise their children. People who were at distant from one another were being reconciled to one another. Business practices changed. Conflict changed. People came together because the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle, it wasn't just a place of 
communicating God can be with you. It was also the place where the word of God was proclaimed so that people would know the truth and they would know the freedom from having the conviction that they were living their lives in accordance with what God wanted for them and they understood who God was and they knew who God was. And it was also a place where people had received God's mercy and God's truth were dispensing that mercy and that truth to other people because the people who were poor, the people who were forgotten, the people who were forsaken came to the tabernacle and it was a place where they expected to receive compassion and reflection of the compassion of God and the whole community began to change. Because the problem was that God was not being connected with, that he had seemed absent. But the reality is now that God was present, everything changed. Because people's hearts changed and their marriages changed and their families changed and the community changed. And David saw, wow, this is amazing. It's like revival is happening around here. And he was so moved by the presence of God in their midst and the reconciliation that was happening and the way people were were being blessed. He thought, we don't want this to be a temporary arrangement. Let's forget the the tabernacle. I want to make this a permanent arrangement where God is in our midst all the time, 24-7. And so David said, let's get rid of the tabernacle and build a temple. And David had these plans in his mind of this 50-acre complex and... There would be this massive structures and it would be awe-inspiring. It would be like a Disney world of righteousness on steroids or something. People would come and they'd go, wow, God lives in your midst. And you know what God said to David? You can't do it. You're a man of war. This is going to be a place of peace. It's a place of righteousness. It's a place of reconciliation. You can't do it. But I love the way that David responds to all this. He understands and he takes it and God says, but your son will build this place. And David is so passionate for God to dwell in the midst of his people because he's so convinced that what the big problem is is a lack of connection with God and what the real solution for him and for his people and for the world is a connection with God. He is so passionate about all of this that toward the end of his life, he does something quite remarkable. And I want to take you kind of to the end. It's actually the last chapter of First Chronicles as David's life is winding down. He's in the winter season of his life, and so it's kind of inspiring to those of us whose lives are winding down or maybe for us who are in the fall of, of life and David is, is kind of on his last leg and he says, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver to the house of my God over and above all I've provided for the holy house. So David has all the silver and all this gold personally and he wants to give it in addition to all of the things that have already been raised, the funds that have been raised, the materials that have already been collected. And he does all this knowing that he himself is not going to be in the temple. He himself is not going to see all of this built. It's for the next generation And then he says, now who will volunteer to consecrate himself to the Lord today? Now, in this passage, David actually lists out what it is that he gives because he's so passionate to see God in the middle of his people. And he he talks about how much gold and about how much silver. And I don't know how to do all the math, but I know people who know how to do the math. And here's what they've done. They've taken all the gold and all the silver and they've translated it into contemporary money. So you know how much David actually gave for the construction of the temple so that God would be in the midst of his people? It was... About $5 billion. That's with a B. I, I still have to go back and look at this just to make sure this is right. Is that billion dollars? Why would... David had a lot. A lot of gold. Now, he left a little bit for Solomon. 
But why would somebody give all of that money? And, and then he challenges other people to do the same. Because David knew in his heart of hearts, if God is not in our midst, it's like we're without water. It's like we're without food. We are not going to make it. We are not going to thrive. We are not going to survive. And other people are inspired to give. And when people see other people who are inspired by David's generosity, because he's not concerned about himself, he's concerned about the next generation. He knows he's not going to see this happen, but he's concerned about God being in the midst of his people. And so here's what happens. Then the people, they see the humility of David and others are inspired. And it says, then the people rejoice because their leader's willingness to give for they had given to the Lord wholeheartedly. Now, that's a hard thing to do because when it comes to your possessions, you know what your possessions mean. They mean security. They mean power. They mean control. How much more money than you have right now do you need in order to control the rest of the world the way you want to have it controlled? Probably a lot more. How much money do you need to keep living physically for another hundred years? More money than you have. Here's David. He gives away all of his gold, all of his silver, other people follow suit because there's this passion and they recognize it's not my possessions. It's not my reputation. It's not my Dorito chips. It's not my next race that I win or whatever the case may be. I know what I need that actually gives me life. And it's God because his has said his unfailing love is better than life itself. And if I don't have him, I've got nothing. David gives it all. Other people give it all. And you know what happens as a result of this? Solomon does follow up and does build the temple. And the nation becomes so great because people understand the freedom and the forgiveness and the mercy and the presence of God in their midst and lives are changed and the community is changed. The nation becomes so great that you have world leaders like the Queen of Sheba and they come to visit Solomon because they see the reputation of this people who has been made one and it's a community like no other. And other people come and they marvel at what is going on because the people of God are living as if God is real and God is in their midst and everything has been brought together and the rest of the world is stunned by this. All because David was willing to pour out everything he had for the benefit of the next generation because of the depth of his conviction that nothing would be as it needed to be unless God was living front and center in the midst of his people. Now, I bring all of this up to say, listen, I know, and it does break my heart, when we do see things about our history as a nation and when we do see the evidence that black people in particular do not always get treated equally in the eyes of the law. People want to cry out for justice and people want there to be an end to prejudice and an end to racism. We all want that. But you know what the ultimate hope for us achieving those things is? It's not if only this side and this side could just fight against each other and when then we could just... if. You, when we leave God out of the equation, and this is not just my conviction, this conviction of Scripture and the conviction of David, this is the conviction of people like Martin Luther King Jr. You can't leave God out of the equation and expect miraculous results. Because what you need and I need and what we all need more than anything else is the presence of God in our midst. And as I was thinking about David looking ahead to the next generation and wanting the next generation to benefit, 
I couldn't help but think about a conversation that uh, Christy and I had had earlier this week because she had read some things about how, you know, history goes in cycles. There's the ups and the downs, and and every once in a while we get to looking at, at the world and how it seems to be falling apart, and we wonder, is is are things going crazy? Is is anything going to return to normal anytime soon? Not that normal was ever perfect, but every once in a while you get to thinking, you know, if we continue to embrace a, a godless philosophy of Marxist critical theory and we try to continue to fight hatred with hatred and overcome conflict with conflict and we're going to leave God out of the equation, is anything going to come back to normal in some respect or another or be better than it was before? And I don't know what the timing is on this. It might be during my lifetime that things never get to be where it is that I think they could be or maybe in some respect were. But it doesn't matter where we are now. It doesn't even matter where we're going to be in another 10 years or 15 years or 20 years. It doesn't matter to me if we're in COVID situation for one more week or one more month or one more year or five more years. Like David, here's what my heart needs to be. I'm thinking about, and we should all be thinking about, the next generation. Because if you get discouraged by what you see on TV, and I, I can't help but think in this moment right now, like we got Brandon over here who's who's in law enforcement and it's like, man, not a pleasant time to be in, in law enforcement. And you got the criticism and the conflict and the fights and the overcoming darkness with darkness and God gets left out of the conversation. It is heartbreaking to be seeing this happening. But here's what I keep my eye on. I keep my eye on the next generation and I keep my eye on what it is that I absolutely know to the core of my being. And that is that the fundamental problem that we have is a lost connection with God. And so the the fundamental solution to the problem is a reconnection through Christ and through Christ alone. And so as long as we are in whatever it is that we are, whether it's good times or bad times, here's what we do. We shine the light of Jesus Christ and we are the salt of the earth that God has made us to be. We point to Christ and to Christ and to Christ, maybe not even for our own sakes, recognizing we may not get the benefit of the gospel that we proclaim as so many people before us did not get the benefit of the gospel they proclaimed. We just have to keep holding up the unfailing love of God without hesitation, without yielding. And this is what David did. And, and the next generation was blessed because of it. And the son of David did the same thing. Jesus Christ had his eye not on his own benefit in the moment, but he did what he did, laying down his life, emptying himself as a sacrifice for many, thinking about the next generation and the next generation and the next generation, and that would include you and include me. And so we do live in funny times. And we do live in situations where sometimes it just feels like we need to quit and roll over, throw our hands up in the air. And I'm just telling you, you can't do it because we know what the problem is and we know where the solution is. And the solution is Christ and Christ alone. And we cannot help but continue to hold him up. This is Father's Day of all days. And and I recognize that as a father, my focus is on the next generation. 
And as a father, yours is too. That's just what dads do. And so that's where our focus is. And I also can't help but think today about the things that my parents did for me and the things that sometimes their parents did for them. Not anybody's parents are perfect. But in times like this, when you're tempted to put the light under a bowl or to not toss the salt into the decaying meat or however the metaphor is, in those moments you need to remember what's been given to you and who comes next. I was thinking about this story from John MacArthur. John MacArthur tells this wonderful story, taught him something spiritually significant. He was on a 4x4 100 relay team in college. And it was the Orange County Invitational. He went to the Orange County Invitational with these three buddies. And their plan was real simple. The first person was going to run the leg as fast as they could because this guy was a sprinter. The third and the fourth runners in the race were going to do their best to make up for all the time that John MacArthur knew he was going to lose. And so the race began and the first person did really great. The baton handoff was fantastic. And then John MacArthur did pretty well so that when he had finished his leg of the race, they were still neck and neck. But the next person who received the baton was running pretty well, went around the curb. And then on the backside of the straightaway, this person just stopped running and went into the infield and sat down. The other three runners went over to him, including John MacArthur, and said, what's going on? They thought that he had pulled a hamstring. They thought that he had twisted his ankle. And, and, and John MacArthur tells us, seriously, this is not a joke. He said, the person who was in our relay race just said, I didn't feel like running today. And so I quit. I know. That's, if you're in a relay race, that's just not an option that is available to you. Somebody passed a baton to you. Oh, and by the way, if you want to think of it in terms of uh, Jesus Christ being the one who starts the church, he ran the first leg. You better keep it going. There are people after you who need you to keep running your leg of the race. Sometimes we just get exhausted, though, when we look at what seems to be an insurmountable task. But I'm just telling you, like David, we see what we know to be true, and that is apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, there is no ultimate hope for this world. Because the fundamental problem at the root of all of these other problems is a lack of connection with God. And the fundamental solution is a reconnection with God. And that happens only in one way. Our high priest, Jesus Christ, went in and with his own blood poured it out as an atoning sacrifice for you and for me. And when that peace with God is established, here's what happens. There's reconciliation. And there's a legitimate end to injustice. And there's a legitimate end to racism. And I know some people say, well, that's just not really possible. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, look. I I don't know that this is the only thing that I've got for you. But I look around this room and I see we've got interracial marriages right here. Jean and I are in one. I'm Indian. She's white. It worked out. I'm from Baylor. She's from OU. That's even more of a barrier to overcome. God overcomes these barriers when you recognize we've got this universal problem, our sin, but we have a universal redemption that is available to to all of us in Christ Jesus. And when people start buying the gospel, it changes the conversation. 
Do you believe this? If you do, it will change the way that you engage in the culture around you. So let's engage as we ought to. Let's bow for a word of prayer. God, we we know we live in a fallen world and we do not deny the problems. As a nation, we have not always lived up to our constitution. We have not always lived up to our manifest destiny. We know this. There are sordid things in our historic past. We know this. But we also recognize that if anything is going to be other than continual conflict, it has to be peace overcoming conflict. It cannot be darkness overcoming darkness. As Martin Luther King Jr. said, it must be light overcoming darkness. It can't be hatred overcoming hatred. It has to be love overcoming hatred. But we live in these funny times where people unfortunately have been defined entirely by the class of which they are part as if individual choices and decisions and situations don't matter. There is an insanity that is setting in. And I pray, Lord, I just pray that as your church, we will proclaim the gospel, a gospel of grace, a gospel of peace, a gospel of light, that the darkness would be pushed back, that the hatred would be overcome, that people would actually know justice and mercy, that people would know healing and unity not merely division. Lord, we do live in times where you, God, the actual source of our joy and of life is getting pushed to the periphery as if we could somehow achieve justice without you. As if somehow you were of peripheral or no concern to our nation and to our communities and to our marriages. How foolish like people who were dying of thirst in the wilderness, like people who were starving to death for lack of food. Lord, we recognize you and your unfailing love. It's better than life. And if we don't have you, we do not have what we need. So Lord, teach us as a church to be convinced of the gospel. Teach us as a people to keep you in the center of our public conversation and may the gospel win the day so that the world would marvel at the peace that comes from you. And in the meantime, Lord, for those of us who are weary, for those of us who want to somehow quit or roll over and stand on the sidelines and let craziness kill craziness, Lord, help us to engage and be the salt of the earth and the light of the world as you've called us to be. I do pray too, Lord, that what you've laid on my heart will be appropriately well received. That we would recognize that while we are not a political church, we do recognize that there are political ramifications for you living in the middle of our lives. No one party has the market on you 
But we just confess wholeheartedly as a church, regardless of political affiliation or lack thereof, that there is no hope for this nation. There is no hope for racial reconciliation. There is no hope for justice. There is no hope for peace. Apart from Christ. Forgive us our sin. Enable us to help people to reconnect with you by pointing people's attention to Jesus. Give us the stamina that we need as your people. And we pray this sincerely in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.